Well, I hope you guys are doing well. It's good to be able to worship together, to be back home in sanctuary. Um, we wrapped up as a young adult's ministry our summer Bible study, inductive Bible study on the book of Titus, and we're doing a quick, brief, mini, mini uh, series on the glory of God before we continue into our next series. Um, but last week, if you were here, uh, Alessandro kicked off our short series on the glory of God by preaching on Exodus 33 and 34. And we examine how God's glory is expressed in his actions, revealed in his attributes. And much of the message centered on God, a theological treatise, if you will. It was on the denser side because Alessandro is smart like that. Um, but it was all planned, prepared, because this week we'll tackle more of the applicational side. We'll unpack tonight the implications of God's glory, how who God is and what he has done should impact how we live. And this ordering is very intentional because a right understanding of the glory of God is the fountainhead that then trickles into everything else, which is why this short study is not only foundational for our upcoming series on dating, but actually everything in life, whether it be Christian parenting, our speech and thoughts, as followers of Christ, how we resolve conflict or counsel one another, what we do with our free time and recreation. It is all shaped by a proper view of the glory of God. The first question and answer in the Westminster Catechism summarizes it well. It says, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, if this is the target that we are aiming for, if everything is bent in this direction, then what should preoccupy our minds and hearts is what does this look like? How do we get there? Our passage tonight grants us some clues. It gives us insight to this dilemma. So if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10. We'll be in 1 Corinthians 10, a very familiar famous section that expands on what it means to live for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, we'll pick up in verse 23 and read all the way to the first verse of chapter 11. So follow along as I read our passage, and then we will ask for the Lord's help in prayer. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 23. This is the word of God. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? 
verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let's pray. God, we want to see Christ, his glory as expressed in his compassion, his love, his righteousness, his holiness. Father, we need to be captivated by that perspective, a divine perspective of the Son of God, the Son of Man, that it would humble us, that it would cause us to be amazed that your Son would die for sinners, not merely to save us, but to redeem and ransom our lives, that we would put on display your glory, that it would be our joy to follow you. It would be our ambition to exalt Christ. We pray for help now as we come to grips with this passage, that you would mold us and shape us, that you would stretch us so as to inspect our own hearts, what we're living for, and how it ought to be you. Lord, we pray that the Spirit would be here to convict and guide, to edify the saints, Lord, and to call the lost to salvation. We pray for your help and praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. First, some helpful context to this book. Paul, the apostle, is writing to the church in Corinth. Now, Corinth was a city rampant with sexual immorality, pagan rituals, and corruption galore. In fact, the people in the city were so depraved that a new word was coined, to Corinthianize. To Corinthianize, a, a derogatory saying for a person who indulged in carnal living. And the city was so steeped in perversity, it had affected, it had reached even the church. That the church itself was a mess, participating in the same sort of debauchery. To the point where the Apostle Paul is forced to admonish them. He addresses the division within the church, how Christians were bringing other Christians to court. He reprimands them for their perversion of the Lord's Supper, how they were getting drunk from communion. Not a good sign, right? You see, people inside the church look just like the people outside. And throughout the letter, while gracious, Paul exposes how these Christians were not honoring and worshiping their Lord. Their lives were not consistent with the gospel that they claimed, the glory of God that they were created for. And I think right off the bat, this resonates with us. Not because we've necessarily embraced a full-fledged pagan lifestyle, but we're certainly familiar with the temptations. Praxis, you live in Corinthian times. The media outlets, the workplace, your peers, and the pressure they put on you, even some of your parents are commending to you, telling you to go with the flow, embrace the world, eat, drink, and be merry, carpe diem, you do you. And we feel this pull, especially as single young adults. You know, most of you are out of the house on your own. You decide how you will spend your money and your weekends. 
You're deliberating between job offers, what career path to carve out. You're picking which people to befriend, to date, how involved you'll get at church, when and where you'll vacation. The choice is yours. But there is a danger to this kind of independence. You see, you can begin to believe that this freedom is for you. But Christian, if you are a Christian, you have been bought with a price, ransomed, redeemed for a greater purpose. Your life is no longer your own. No, as believers, we are called to something drastically different than our own pursuits or the offerings of this world. You and I have been called by God for God. So that the dominant ambition is no longer, how will I satisfy my wants? How will I live for me? No, but now it's how will I steward what I have? How will I live for the glory of God and render honor to his name? Paul begins to answer this crucial question by first providing some principles, the principles of the Christian life, if you're taking notes. We're all familiar with verse 31, right? Uh, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But this verse doesn't occur in a vacuum. There is a buildup that brings us to this mighty declaration. So we have to rewind and back up to verse 23 and 24 to catch Paul's train of thought. He writes, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, I want you to notice the quotes, the quotes in verse 22. You see, Paul is quoting the society, what's generally acknowledged and accepted during the time. This is the bottom rung. The bare minimum, is it lawful? Sure, we know there are suspect characters who have no moral compass, it's true today. But for the majority of us, the civic law is usually the starting line for what's fair and what's foul. If something isn't lawful, it's not up for debate. So cocaine is illegal. Don't steal from the store or assault someone. But as Christians, we take it a step further. Where civic law is the ethic for earthly citizens, our citizenship is in heaven. Therefore, we take our cues from the law of God. Scripture is our ultimate authority. So if the Bible prohibits us from killing innocent lives or festering in bitterness, we must obey. If the Bible calls us to forgive those who have wronged us and evangelize those who don't know him, we must obey. What God makes black and white, what his word is clear upon, we must not muddy or skirt around. And yet Paul is a realist. The scriptures don't comment on everything. The Bible is rather silent on sports, music, cooking, smartphones, who to vote for, how much sleep we're supposed to get. We live daily in the moral gray. But that doesn't mean at the same time that we're completely at a loss. 
armed with the truth of God's word, we exercise biblical wisdom. We adopt godly principles, which is what Paul is getting at. Look again at verses 23 and 24. Paul provides his own commentary on these quotes, going above and beyond what is socially and scripturally permissible. You catch that? Look at how Paul repeats himself almost verbatim in verse 23, except how these sentences end. Helpful. Build up. Doubly reinforced, Paul is keen in on a better rubric, a higher standard. Just because something is lawful doesn't mean you should do it. I think that's common sense, right? Or it should be. Just because you can eat dirt doesn't mean you should eat dirt. Just because you can spend your life savings doesn't mean you should spend your life savings you'd be actually foolish to do so. Well, a Christian is governed by something else. Again, a higher standard. What will be helpful? What will be edifying? That is what you should pursue. Do whatever is beneficial. Do whatever builds up. Imagine if this, then, was a major variable in your mental calculus. It wouldn't be an issue of, can I do this? Can I do that? No, the reigning principle would be, will this help my faith? Will this increase my affection for Jesus Christ? Will this honor the Lord? And will it help others to do the same? Can you watch that movie? Yes, legally you can. But will it warm your heart to cherish the gospel? Will it edify those that you are watching with? I mean, can you smoke a cigarette? Yes, legally you can, but will this build up your devotion to God? Will it help you and others to love Jesus more? The principles Paul Paul is laying out, they're escalating. First from is it lawful to is it helpful? In other words, is it loving? And Paul now takes this principle for a test drive with a real-life example. We resume in verse 25 says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We'll stop there. Now, what's going on here? Well, we need to understand some history. You see, back then, the meat market often sold meat that was previously dedicated to false idols or used in the temple for pagan rituals. And naturally, the Christians in Corinth would wonder, okay, is it okay then to eat this meat? Paul is settling the case. There's no reason to raise a fuss about it. The Bible doesn't prohibit eating such meat. Instead, the apostle cites Psalm 24, 1. Everything belongs to the Lord. So we don't have to overcomplicate the matter. Don't over-spiritualize the food. The idea is that since God doesn't care, neither should you. So go home, fire up the grill, eat the meat. But in verses 27 and 28, Paul presents the same situation with a slight twist. Follow along with me in verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice 
then do not eat it for the sake of one who informed you, for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. So now Paul is adding people to the equation. No longer privately dining in your own home, but now in the company of others, in the public eye. And we remember Corinth was a Greek city where Greek gods and goddesses were revered, celebrated. So it wasn't unusual for the host of a meal to raise a glass of wine to Aphrodite or to dedicate the meat to Zeus. And it was recognized, known by all, to participate in such a meal, in eating and drinking, was to pay tribute to these gods, to worship these pagan idols. So in this scenario, the food then was invested with spiritual meaning, spiritual significance. Of course, the reality is there's no special voodoo, nothing inherently mystical about the meat. But Paul says, so as not to confuse unbelievers or stumble another believer present, he exhorts the Christian to refrain, to exercise liberty by limity, by loving. A Christian is not governed, again, just by what's lawful, but what's helpful. You know, there are many modern-day parallels, but I'll give you just one. Drinking. And I'm not talking about Capri Sun or Boba Milk Tea. Um, kind of got even quieter in here, maybe a little more awkward. But the Bible doesn't explicitly prohibit drinking alcohol. The Bible does explicitly prohibit getting drunk, Ephesians 5. So if you're getting drunk, that's sin, according to Scripture, and you need to repent. But what about the in-between? What about, say, a casual drink at happy hour? Well, it depends. We need to exercise biblical wisdom. We need to apply these principles. If you're in the company, say, of someone who is a recovering alcoholic, sure, liberty says you're still fine drinking if you are of age. But love, Christian love, would make you at least considerate, sensitive to how this might tempt the person who's battling their addiction. Or if you're with others who are immature in the faith and can't handle alcohol responsibly, maybe a fellow Christian who has more of a fundamentalist background, less aware of the nuances of Scripture, liberty again says you are in your own right to drink. But love, Christian love, might cause you to pause. Because this brother or sister's faith might be shaken up by your actions. Or they might wrongly assume, well, if you take a sip, it's fine then to just get wasted. So what's the solution? I'm not telling you to drink alone or to do it in secret. I'm merely showcasing the kinds of consideration, thought, and principles we should be running through in our head. This is not easy. It requires humility, patience, maybe even counsel from others. And listen, this is just one example. We haven't even entertained how to handle rap music, gambling and playing slot machines, wearing designer jeans, or the kind of language we use with each other. These can be complex issues, but complex issues are best served through the clarifying principles Paul lays out in this passage. 
Now, this doesn't mean we live the rest of our lives simply restricted by the ignorance of others. We want to teach others the truth of God's word so that they are biblically informed. But in those moments, when you have the opportunity to build others up or tear them down, will you look to the interests of others more than yourself? Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Flat out, that's not fair. That's not fair. And Paul is prepared for such a protest. Look at verse 29, the second half to verse 30. He says, For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Paul knows the lawyer residing within all of us. All the arguments we might muster up and push back. Who cares what others think? Isn't it good enough that I know what I'm doing isn't sinful, that I'm giving thanks to God? Why can't I just do my own thing? Well, to put it bluntly, I think the Apostle Paul would say, because it's not about you. It's not about me. Yes, we are free in Christ, but that freedom has never been licensed to be selfish but selfless, not to serve our own appetites and aspirations, but to serve and love others. Just like who? Jesus Christ. The gospel is the contour to our liberty. I mean, why did Jesus go to the cross? Certainly not out of a concern for his own comforts or wants. No, he says, not my will be done, but God yours. He loved the Father, obeying the plan of salvation, looking to your interests, not his own. So he humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, dying on the cross for your sin and mine. Jesus Christ was the freest person ever. And he demonstrates true liberty and what it looks like when he lays down his life to love others. And when this when this becomes the operating system in life, the main principle, then you and I are externalizing the internal. You're broadcasting the gospel message in gospel love, echoing exactly what God has done for you. You know, here at Lighthouse, we often say nothing comes into our lives that doesn't first pass through the filter of God's love. Well, let that be true of his followers as well that nothing we do comes into other people's lives that doesn't first pass through the filter of God's love. So is it lawful? Is it helpful? Is it loving? Paul has outlined guiding principles for the Christian life, and now he reveals where they all culminate. Verse 31 I mean, I love this because he doesn't even address those hypothetical questions that he's bringing up in verses 29 and 30 about how we might fight for our rights. Instead, he pierces through with verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Is it God glorifying? This ties everything together because even in loving others, we can do it for our own reputation or for the approval of others. But the apostle has us inspect whether our motivation is indeed the glory of God. Now we toss 
these words around so casually because it's Christian language, right? Christian vernacular sounds so wise, so pious. You know, a friend will be freaking out, frantically asking us, you know, should I buy that car? Who should I date? What kind of diet should I go on? And how do we respond? I don't care. No, I'm just kidding. We're Christians here. We don't say that. We go to our trademark response. Well, does it glorify God? And yet such a big, lofty concept can still come off rather fuzzy and vague, right? What does it mean to glorify God? What does it look like to glorify God in eating and drinking or in anything else for that matter? Paul drills down to the basics. He breaks life into its most elementary, its most routine parts, activities like eating and drinking. Because as we just saw in the previous section, there's more at stake than just chomping on food or sipping a beverage. If even pagans can worship their Greek gods through a meal, how much more can we as Christians render glory to the one true living God in eating and drinking? You see, glorifying God doesn't only happen in the epic, large moments or in the religious Sunday moments of life either. It's not just when we get married or land a huge promotion. It's not when we just read the whole Bible for the first time or go on short-term mission trip. Glorifying God is done in the details. When your life displays him supreme in the small things, you make him the biggest thing. To glorify God means every aspect of life is ultimately for the purpose of showing him worthy, of rendering him honor by your obedience, by your allegiance, by your affection. A life won over completely, sold out to Jesus Christ. That he's not just the priority, he's the only priority. So that what frames and influences, say, your money spending, your dating, and your dieting is the glory of God. You glorify God in your money when you show by your spending and your saving that what you prize most is God, not all the things that you can buy. You glorify God in your dating when you show by your purity, your intention, that what concerns you most is obeying God, loving others, not just satisfying your own desires. You glorify God in your dieting when you show your, by your health that your body, even your body, is a stewardship from God to serve others. You glorify God when everything in life becomes a billboard to put him on display. Let's say you had a friend who's super generous. You know, he gave you $1,000 a day. You know, if you are this friend, come talk to me after. Let's chat. But if I had this generous friend who gave me $1,000 a day, how would I glorify their generosity? Not by paying them back, right? First, it's $1,000. Second, if I return the money or try to render some service that's commensurate, what am I doing? I am reducing their generosity into a transaction. You do this for me, now I do this for you. You scratch my back, now I scratch yours. We wouldn't be friends. We'd be monkeys or business partners or something like that. No, the way to glorify my friend's generosity is to be rich in thanks, to tell others about 
the kindness of my friend, to follow in his altruistic footsteps and be generous with others, to delight in who he is and what he's done. Practice in the same. We can never pay God back for how gracious he's been to us. There's nothing we can ever do to reimburse God for the gospel. But that is precisely the point. We're not supposed to. It's in the gospel. We're captivated by the richness of God's glory. That he is amazing and kind. That he is a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. A God who is worthy of our lives. How do you glorify God even in eating and drinking today in 2022? Will you treat these activities as they are? Gifts from God to propel you towards God. Everything belongs to the Lord that you might know him, that you might thank him, that you might worship and glorify him. And Christians, you of all people have the capability to enjoy life to the fullest because you know what it's all for. You know who it's from. You can drink orange juice. You can eat pizza for the glory of God because you understand God is the one behind it all. Just consider, it may seem silly, but pizza, the chewiness of the cheese, the crispy crust, how your taste buds explode from a medley of flavors. God is the one who governs the natural laws, who has designed the experience of eating and drinking. Why? Not just so that you can enjoy a slice of pizza, but so that you can revel in how kind, brilliant, and glorious God is. I mean, he could have designed eating to where everything tasted like cardboard, but he didn't. He designed all things in life, whether eating or drinking, so that you would taste and see that the Lord is good. Even pizza can be a platform to get you to him. Non-Christians, on the other hand, they stop too short because for them, everything terminates a bit prematurely. You know, they might appreciate the freshness of the ingredients, the technology of the oven, maybe even be amazed at the person who crafts the pizza, but they miss the one who has made it all. They miss how these gifts can catapult us to the giver. They don't know the God of pizza, the God of a stunning sunset, or soothing rainfall. They don't know the God of a good friendship, of a hearty laughter. They don't know the God of the gospel. They don't know God. It is the unbeliever who is far too easily pleased. But brothers and sisters, there is incredible potential for us because we get the purpose to life, the glory of God, knowing him and making him known. You see, we often have this misconception that there are sacred things and then there are secular things. We assume the sacred things are, you know, we go to church to glorify God. We worship God when we sing praise. By eating food, working on a spreadsheet, watching TV, talking to our colleagues, those things are secular things. But this passage shatters the, the secular sacred divide. 
Everything is sacred because everything can be redeemed for the glory of God. Paul, in verse 31, is working his way from the bottom up, from what you eat and drink, to how you handle social media, to your interactions and conduct on the job, to the way you respond to anxiety and eating disorder. It all falls under the giant umbrella of God's glory. Now, I know this may be a bit overwhelming. There's a lot to chew on. We may be wondering, where do I start? And yet, thankfully, this is not something we're left on our own to figure out. Having provided us principles and the purpose to life, Paul directs our attention, lastly, to the pattern of the Christian life. The pattern of the Christian life. Verse 32. Paul says, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So here we see Paul practicing what he's preaching. He's trying to use his freedom, his liberty to love others so that others might come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, Paul doesn't mean he's capitulating and catering to others in a manner that would compromise his integrity or faithfulness to God. That's clear from the verses we looked at before. Yet, so far as he can uphold godly principles and the purpose of life, he will exercise his liberty to glorify God and win people to Jesus Christ. And yet, what I want you to notice is the difficulty of what Paul is setting out to do. He's wearing a lot of hats here, trying to juggle so many differences, right? Jewish culture is very different from Greek culture. What might be offensive to one is perfectly acceptable for the other. And then Paul says in verse uh, 32, well, let's throw in church culture as well. And it feels like an impossible task then to please everyone in everything. This is a tall order. And surely we can sympathize. You know, as Christians, it is challenging to live in this world without being of the world. How are we supposed to, say, honor our parents when they aren't believers and have a different set of convictions, different set of values? What does it look like to be ambitious in our jobs without making it an idol? How do we distinctly think through buying a house as a Christian, or living in such a place as expensive as it is in L.A. These problems are just as tough as what the Apostle Paul was facing because the Bible doesn't address every thorny situation we encounter in life. As we mentioned before, it does contain wisdom. We search the scriptures for principles and the purpose of life as outlined in 1 Corinthians. And yet that's not all God has given to us because we see these principles and purpose patterned for us by others. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So he not only instructs them, but informs them to imitate him. Yes, information from the Bible is essential but so is imitation. That's why there is a community of faith, brothers and sisters in Christ to lean on and learn from. 
That's why here at Lighthouse, we plug fellowship groups and church-wide events so that we might rub shoulders with one another. We want to preach the word of God to inform the mind, but we also need one another to model the heart. And as we share life and the challenges of being a disciple of Christ, we are discipling one another on what following Jesus might look like. I like how one theologian illustrated it. He says, it's like show and tell. Show and tell. Remember that exercise from kindergarten? Sure, you could just tell someone about your favorite stuffed animal or toy. You could also just show them your favorite stuffed animal or toy, but it becomes more concrete, more compelling when you do both. So the same in the Christian life, in our aim to live for the glory of God. We need to show and tell so that others see and hear. We need to see and hear from those who are faithfully grappling with same-sex attraction or fighting against lust so that we learn what is required to be pure and devoted to the Lord. We need to see and hear from both singles and married alike so we learn how our station in life doesn't define us, but is an avenue to worship Christ better. We need to see and hear from those working in the entertainment industry, and those who are currently unemployed so that we learn what excellence, contentment, and trusting God looks like in hard circumstances. Look, if you're going through a specific trial or trying to grow in a particular area, one of the most practical steps you can take is to seek someone out Seek someone out who has endured the same trial or matured in the area that you're weak in and learn from them. Just approach them and ask, hey, can you show and tell me how you handled unfair bosses in a Christ-honoring way? Can you share with me how you have wrestled with time management and budgeting so that you can serve others? Practice, who are you discipling and who are you being discipled by? Because the truth is, we are always, we are always leading and following simultaneously. Now, discipleship doesn't have to be anything sophisticated or official, but it does need to be happening. And guess what? It can take place here, during small groups, after, over snacks, and even outside of praxis. It happens every single time we're humble, vulnerable enough to bear one another's burdens, to encourage each, other's, each other towards Christ. And you don't have to have it all mapped out and worked out. You don't have to be the perfect example. You just need to be humble enough to learn together. The shape and size of our discipleship may vary across the board, but we all follow a similar pattern. We imitate others who follow Christ, and we image Christ to others so they can too. The principles and purpose of life find their flesh and bone in the patterns established by other believers. As the great Charles Simeon said, there are but two lessons for the Christian to learn. The one is to enjoy God in everything. The other is to enjoy everything in God. Paul has given us a place to start 
by providing us the principles and the purpose to Christian life. And now he exhorts and commends to us that we would pattern what it looks like as we wrestle with Scripture and as we wrestle with our lives to honor the Lord and to live for his glory. Let's pray. Father, it can be a daunting thing to try to navigate through this life with all sorts of challenges, troubles, suffering, and pressures, and yet you have not abandoned your people. You've given us your son. You have saved us for yourself that we might proclaim your excellencies, that we might declare your grace to the world, to each other, and to our own souls, that we might follow in your footsteps. And Father, help us, Lord, to live not merely by a set of rules of do's and don'ts, but to allow the wisdom we glean from your word and to harness that wisdom that we might love you and love others. God, that we would embark upon this adventure with great joy, knowing that we have one another, that we can humbly learn from each other, that we have the community of faith to allow us to press on. Lord, we pray for much fruit to be born in our small groups. And even now, as we reflect and respond in song, would you cause our hearts to soar and to sing because of who Christ is and what he has done and our desire to honor him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.